Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the fourth session of Bird's Eye View of the Bible, where we're going to start to look at the New Testament. Let us begin with prayer. This is a prayer from Soren Kierkegaard, the um, Danish philosopher. The birds have their nests and the foxes their holes, but you were homeless, Lord Jesus, with nowhere to rest your head. And yet you were a hiding place where the sinner could flee. Today you are still such a hiding place and I flee to you. I hide myself under your wings and your wings cover the multitude of my sins. Amen. Um, if you send me an email, remind me. Kierkegaard, yeah. That's all right. Because that's what I don't know. Appropriate in starting to look at uh, the life of Jesus. Yes. Uh, how'd you do on. Uh, did anybody attempt the um, Old Testament exercise? Not yet. Not yet? <laughs> not yet? <laughs> all right. I looked at it at that Well, that's okay. It can take you some time. It's not easy. It's not easy. Let me say, I, I haven't printed off answer keys. But if you, if you want, when you've made an attempt, just email me and I'll send it to you. Okay, so just reply to one of my emails. Please send me the Old Testament key and uh, that'll be fine. So last week we finished our lightning speed overview of the Old Testament. And at a bird's eye view, we got the sense of a narrative that began with Abraham and God's promise to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and that all the nations of the world would find blessing in him. And we saw that narrative uh, progress through uh, the development of Israel as a nation, uh, coming through the Red Sea, receiving the uh, commandments, uh, eventually having a king and various promises like the promise to Abraham uh, given to, to uh, David the king uh, and so on. And part of that narrative too were uh, messages of people like prophets saying what kind of people Israel was to be, how Israel was to be a blessing to other nations and it, it Essentially, so there was a strong ethic uh, part of that, and um, they did that because Israel was not being this uh, kind of people, and so prophets not only uh, railed against injustice and so forth, but they also looked forward with hope uh, to the future, and uh, some spoke about a new covenant that would come. Uh, they spoke about uh, God writing laws on human hearts. They spoke about uh, God uh, sending his spirit. They spoke about uh, a, a, a God forgiving sins. Uh, Jeremiah in particular was, was uh, uh, vocal of those uh, sorts of things. So these are the parts of this grand narrative that we saw in the Old Testament. And now we come uh, a couple hundred years later to the New Testament. Yes. Is that okay? Okay. 
Okay, ready to roll. Here we go. So let's do something like what we did with the introduction to the Old Testament and look at um, an introduction to the New Testament, just uh, looking at the literature that we have, uh, what have we got there, and um, so we get a handle on it. Uh, so we've got 27 books in the New Testament, and since the 4th century, not a lot of debate. Yeah, some, but not a lot of debate. Like we had with the Old Testament, the apocryphal books, remember? Um, things seem to have been settled in the 4th in the century. Uh, two collections in particular uh, got formed, probably in the 2nd century, uh, the collection of four Gospels. Uh, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, in the day, uh, they would be considered biographies of the life of Jesus. I wouldn't bet my life on these four people being the actual authors of the four books but I don't have a better suggestion. <laughs> it's, it's, it's what the tradition has given us. Uh, Matthew and John being disciples of Jesus. Uh, Mark, according to tradition, being an associate of Peter. And Luke being um, a colleague of Paul. Um, and those connections will be important. Uh, the order of the, of, of the four books, they weren't always in this order, but in the various orders we have, Matthew was always first. Matthew was, it, it's very uh, useful for uh, catechetical purposes, for, for, for teaching new believers. And so Matthew was very useful from that perspective in the early church. So that's why Matthew comes first. What was that fancy word you used? Catechetical? Um, uh, as in catechism, okay. so teaching the faith. Ah, yes. <laughs> we think uh, we um, the scholars think that Mark was probably written first. It's the shortest of the four, and the prevailing opinion still. <laughs> Prevailing opinions change from time to time, but the prevailing opinion still is that Matthew and Luke both had a copy of Mark to write their Gospels from, and Matthew and Luke had another document that was in common between them. And we don't have that. In fact, we have no evidence of it apart from Matthew and Luke. We have no physical evidence of this document ever existing, but it has gotten the name Q. Q. Mm -hmm. Q? Q. Q, just Q. Oh, okay. Yeah, so some of you may have heard that. Uh, so it's a hypothetical document that, it, that by definition has all the material in Matthew, that it's in both Matthew and Luke, but it's not in Mark. That's by definition. We won't be talking about it anymore, but if you've heard about it, that's what it is. Just Q as the letter Q. Yeah. Not Q as in 
Okay, so there's your, your Gospels. Following the Gospels, we have the book of Acts, which covers the spread of the Jesus movement uh, from Jerusalem to eventually to Rome. Um, I'm going to use that expression, the Jesus movement, rather than Christianity, uh, simply because we get in our minds that Christianity is a different religion from Judaism. Right? It gets there, but it's not how it started. <laughs> so I'll use the expression, the Jesus movement. Okay. Uh, we, we're fairly sure that the person who wrote the book of Acts also wrote the third gospel, who we call Luke. So it seems to be a two-volume affair. And being two volumes means two scrolls. It have been filled on two scrolls. Luke. Yeah. Following uh, uh, the book of Acts, we have 13 letters bearing the name Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who was a key figure in the Jesus movement, uh, we know more about Paul than anyone other than Jesus in the Jesus movement. Um, and he's writing these letters uh, to various churches. Um, some of the churches, most of the churches that he actually founded, not all, but uh, most of them. And he's addressing various issues that arise in these churches. And they may be uh, doctrinal issues, they may be practical issues, um, they may be moral issues. Uh, it varies from letter to letter. And, and that's actually helpful to recognize right from the beginning is the um, unsystematic way in which we read Paul's letters. He didn't sit down to write a, this is what I think about Jesus. This is what I think about the, the uh, Jesus movement. He didn't write a systematic treatment of that. What we have are occasional letters. Responses to situations. He yes, right. yes. The, the, they all have a, uh, a, a situationness to them. Which is, of course, trying to figure out that situation is helpful to understand them. Uh, what is he actually responding to here? Uh, again, just um, reflecting some scholarly opinion. As I said, scholarly opinion uh, changes from time to time. Um, not everyone believes that all 13 letters were written by Paul even though his name is at the top of each of these letters. Um, and scholars are basing that on things like, well, it comes down to if Paul said this in this letter, would the same person have said this in this letter? It's that trying to, trying to uh, see if there's a consistency, I, I suppose. A person could have been writing that Paul said this. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, uh, let me put it this way. Even if some were not written by Paul, 
they're more like Paul than like anything else in the New Testament. So, so a follower of Paul, uh, one of his colleagues perhaps. But uh, just to give you an idea of where scholarship is, uh, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, no one has ever doubted that Paul wrote those letters. So that's one end of the scale. First uh, and second Timothy and Titus, towards the bottom of the list there, significant doubt that Paul wrote those. Most would not believe that Paul wrote those. We call those the pastoral epistles. Uh, so that's four letters at one end, three letters at the other end. And then the, letter, the letters in the middle, interestingly, um, well, there's another three. Uh, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon, that today, maybe not a hundred years ago, but today, uh, you'd be very on very strong, uh, so, uh, solid ground in any university to claim that those were written by Paul. That's the prevailing opinion today. You wouldn't have to defend Paul's authorship of those letters. So where the discussion today in scholarship is with regard to Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, so... Interestingly, in the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years, some very prominent uh, scholars have come out in favor of Pauline authorship of those three letters. And so it's interesting where the, how, how the prevailing opinions change from time to time. Anyways, I just thought you might like to know that. You, you hear these things every once in a while. Um, if, if you're disturbed about this question of authorship, note that there's no question about these books being in the New Testament. <laughs> it's just that if, if you're going to write a book about Paul, then you need to know which letters were written by Paul. <laughs> and then, uh, okay, yes, uh, Paul's letters addressing issues in the churches. And then uh, the final um, section, or almost final section, is a section we call the Catholic Letters. They address a wide range of issues, Hebrews, James, two letters of Peter, three letters of John and Jude. And I can't really summarize them. They're, uh, they're addressing different situations, um, but like Paul, yes, they're addressing specific situations. Hebrews is interesting because we actually have no clue who wrote it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then uh, the last in the New Testament is the book of Revelation, which is like Daniel and Apocalypse. Um, so John is on a journey and he sees things in the future. He sees things in heaven and he has an angelic a guide to help interpret what's going on. Okay. Now, uh, people often ask, uh, how did they decide what books to go into the New Testament? And this was something that developed over 
uh, the first three or four hundred years of the history of the church. As I said earlier, um, in the second century, you had collections of some parts that would be the New Testament, first being the Gospels and then the letters of Paul. They would be collected and they, um, interestingly, they would be bound together like what we think of as a book as opposed to a scroll. Uh, and that was a significant development, actually, in the second century. Uh, the technical term is a codex. Uh, they, uh, we think of it as a book. Um, but uh, as time went on, um, uh, uh, Christians were concerned about which books, which writings they would take to be authoritative for the Jesus movement. And the Principles that uh, came out in the wash in terms of what was going to be accepted were these four that I've given you. Um, was a writing apostolic? Was it written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle? That's why I made that comment about Mark and Luke. Uh, that, that, that was an important criterion. Uh, is is the writing Catholic? That is, is it widely accepted throughout the church, or does it have an o only a narrow acceptance, like in um, uh, in Syria or in Rome or wherever? So, is there a wide acceptance? Third, um, does is the writing orthodox? Does the writing agree with the central, central tenets of the Christian faith that have been passed on throughout the churches from generation to generation? And fourth, is the writing, uh, does it have a traditional usage? That is, has the writing been used by Christians over a long period of time? And these were the principles, the criteria that got used to sift out which of uh, the writings would make it into a canon, which would be considered to be authoritative throughout the Christian church, um, which got settled about, well, the latter part of the fourth century. Uh, so there are two councils in 393 and 397, uh, that we have record, they've got the same list of 27 books. And after that, there wasn't any real debate until Martin Luther came around and had some questions about the book of James. <laughs> Can I ask yeah. a basic question? What yeah. exactly is the definition of a canon? A canon is a collection of authoritative writings. Okay, it, any other questions on, on the writings? Okay. Uh, now, you've got a, uh, a one-page history of the New Testament, uh, comparable to the one-pager I gave you for the Old Testament. And you can work through this on your own. I just tried to put onto one page. Uh, the scope of people and events. You've got the Roman emperors down your left-hand column. 
and then the various rulers in Palestine, uh, down the middle, and then a list of events on the right-hand side. And this is, this is um, from the time when the Romans took over Jerusalem, which was 63 B.C. So we've, we've changed an era from a Persian or Greek rule to uh, Roman rule. Okay, and um, yeah, I'll let you work through this. Uh, the dates, some of the dates are approximate. Uh, for example, we don't know the date when Jesus was born. Um, that shouldn't surprise you. He wasn't born in a royal context. He wasn't born a wealthy person. Um, and so why would anybody write that down? Uh, one of the things that going through this will help to sort out are the Herods. <laughs> there are many Herods. Uh, Herod the so-called Great, who was... Uh, who died in 4 BC. Uh, those that came after him liked to liken themselves after their father or grandfather, and so took the name Herod. <laughs> and sometimes in the New Testament, you just get Herod. And you have to say, okay, which Herod is this? Who are we talking about? Uh, so yes, there are uh, some uh, di different Herods. So I'll leave you to uh, go through that yourself. That's fine, but when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about his ministry a little bit before the year 30, somewhere in there, and um, you've got uh, a fellow named uh, Pontius Pilate who's in charge in Jerusalem, but the administration is different in Galilee where Jesus grew up. I think we can uh, For an introduction to what life was like, just briefly, I want to ask a few questions. Um, two of the fundamental questions that would be on Jews' minds at this time are what is God doing and what should we be doing? So many Jews would be wondering what God was doing with them. Their hopes for the restoration of Israel had not fully materialized. The Messiah had not appeared. And many would be asking whether the exile had in fact ended. The expectations of the prophets about a new age had not materialized. So what was God doing? And indeed, what should we be doing? And we can look at a few things uh, in terms of what we should be doing. Uh, from a Jewish perspective, there was an emphasis on the law, on Torah. And we saw that uh, last week, with, um, in particular with Ezra the priest, re-establishing the community around Jerusalem after coming back from Babylon. Uh, 
with a renewed concern for the law. According to the prophets, Israel went into exile because she disregarded the law. Now in the restored community, the law would become a central focus. Okay. There's an emphasis of the law and there's an emphasis on the temple. The rebuilding of the temple was the first task of Jews who returned from Babylon in 515 BC. It was built. Indeed, you could speak of Jerusalem as a temple state. Um, uh, some have actually described Jerusalem not as a city with a temple, but as a temple with a small city around it. Temple is where all of the sacrifices would take place. So faithfulness to God would be characterized by pro proper regard for the temple and the sacrifices. You don't speak against the temple. Along with the emphasis on the law would be something that I'm going to call boundary markers. Uh, uh, certain dis. certain tangible things that distinguish Jews from non-Jews. What would those things be? Circumcision. Circumcision. <laughs> um, that's a very tangible thing. Uh, it, interestingly, uh, though it's a very private thing, it's, it would be public knowledge uh, of whether a man was circumcised or not. Uh, what you eat. That's an everyday thing, what you eat. Um, so proper food. What else would be a boundary marker? That your spouse was Jewish? Probably mar yeah, marriage, although there is some difference of opinion, but yes. And one of the other very tangible thing. Uh, let me give you a clue. Uh, Jews had a reputation of being lazy for this reason. Sabbath. 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 Yeah. There weren't no weekends in those days. So these would be tangible things that would distinguish um, uh, Jews from non-Jews and often became the point of dispute. For example, in the days of the Maccabees, going back to 160s BC, uh, when the Syrian overlords came down, they tried to get people to eat pork. So that becomes the focus point uh, that breaks out into war. Um, so, yeah. so, uh, so, so it's not to say these things are more important than loving your neighbor, it's just that they become very tangible. <laughs> and uh, along with the boundary mark, uh, markers is the challenge of foreign culture so beginning probably by the end of the 4th century and remaining throughout what we call the second temple period when this t uh, temple was uh, still standing 
The question for Jews was how to respond to the influence of foreign culture, in this case, Greek culture. And Greek culture would be manifest in a whole variety of ways, clothing, literature, uh, relationships, amusements, politics, religion, etc. So Greek culture was ubiquitous, and there would be a variety of opinions among Jews about how to respond. Some, like the Maccabees, would be at one end, and then there were very liberal Jews who saw themselves uh, um, as indistinguishable. Uh, becoming Greek was the way to get ahead, if you like. So you have a whole range of opinion uh, with, um, within that spectrum. And of course, those at the liberal end would be seen by these people over here as committing apostasy. Right? And the others would be seen as stuck in the mud. <laughs> Theological options, interestingly, well, just uh, briefly, uh, Jews were monotheists. And what do I mean by monotheists? Monotheists in three uh, specific ways. They were creational monotheists. That is, Jews believed in one God, Yahweh, who is the creator of all that is. So this is, who, who is the one God? Well, he's, he's the God who created. Uh, we're not in the world of a, created by a different God. We're uh, our God is the one who created the world. Therefore, the world is not evil. The world is not a bad place. Um, the physical world is not something we need to get away from. Physicality is fundamentally good because God created it. Okay. We'll see where this uh, comes up against some other ideas. Uh, secondly, uh, Jews were monotheists in that they believed that their God was providential. Jews believed that their God was active in so-called natural events. He can also act through supernatural events, but in contrast to other theological options, Jews understood God to be at work in historical events. He's not removed from the world. He didn't make it, and they say, okay, now the clock can unwind. And thirdly, uh, Jews were monotheists in that they were covenantal. Um, with regard to evil, Jews believed that Yahweh was committed to eliminating it from his creation and restoring peace and justice, and that he was doing this through Israel. The answer to the problem of evil is to be found within the history of Israel. As it says in one rabbinic writing, I will make Adam first 
And if he goes astray, I will send Abraham to sort it all out. Okay, so Jews were monotheists, and monotheists in particular in this way. Uh, just to uh, sharpen that a little bit, note the options in the day. Uh, something called henotheism uh, would be a, uh, a belief in one God, or at least a commitment to one God, although they're an acknowledgement of other gods, gods of other nations, but we worship only one God. That would be a kind of monotheism. Uh, we have our God and other people have their gods. That's not Jewish monotheism. Okay. The other gods are idols. Is that kind of like so one God? Is that sort of like today in some ways with people over there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Most of these will be like people today. <laughs> yeah, just making sure. Uh, pantheism. Uh, pantheism, uh, God is understood to be that which permeates everything that exists. So God is in everything. Pantheism. Evil, therefore, this is the great problem for pantheism, is why is there evil then if God is in everything? Why do bad things happen? Well, evil is only apparent. We must rise above it by denying its existence. That's the position of Stoicism. Stoicism is a, a very prominent option in the time of the New Testament. You, we think of Stoics, the, the classic Stoics in our history might be the British during the Second World War. You know, a stiff upper, upper lip, right? So you soldier on through. So that's where it comes from, the term Stoic, it, No, it comes from the ancient world. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. They rise above it by denying its existence. Which yeah. Pretend it's not there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In other words, oh, okay. okay. See yeah. here. What is it? Here. See here. Speaking. Okay. Speaking. Okay. Uh, Gnosticism, uh, a little bit out of uh, time here, probably uh, doesn't fully develop for another hundred years. It's really a second century development. But it's important. We might have some um, things in the first century that develop into Gnosticism in the second century. But the idea is that this physical world, where we experience so much pain and suffering, was created by a lesser God. The sovereign God is a God of the spiritual realm who does not involve himself in the physical world. Our experience of evil is due to the limitations of the physical world. What we need is for our spirits to be set free from this material world. Well, somebody says they're agnostic. What exactly mean? I'm not really sure if there's a God or not. Okay. Yeah. So these ones are all sure of what they think. Okay. An agnostic is not, not sure, sure. <laughs> what they think. They're not sure, but they... They're not denying it either. They're not denying they it really either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An atheist is sure. Yes. <laughs> okay. 
So, so the um, Gnosticism forms its its own Christian version in the second century, and the affirmation is that the God of Jesus Christ is not the God of the Old Testament. the God of the Old Testament created the world and that's part of the problem the God of Jesus Christ is much different okay. and then finally paganism which is not a monotheism at all it's a many theism uh, the universe is populated by many divine beings some oversee the affairs of the nations others govern different aspects of the world such as the sea the storm, fire, etc. And still others are involved with different human activities such as war, sex, travel. Uh, evil comes when the gods are not pleased for some reason or other and thus gods need to be appeased. Okay. So that could be uh, Hinduism and those? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So, that, okay. um, so, so in the... Oh! We didn't get down to there, sorry. Yes. Uh, we didn't, we didn't, you skipped over D, uh, Right, so... Um, did I skip over deism? I'll, I'll come back to it, sorry. So, uh, uh, pa uh, pa paganism. Uh, so, the... Most people in the Greco-Roman world would be pagans. That would be the... the um, Particularly if you didn't have an education, you, you were brought up into this. This is the world you're brought up into. And there, you go into a city and there are different statues, uh, idols around. This is the temple of this god. This is the temple of this god. This, and, and, and there's no competition. I mean, you can be a devotee of this god and you know, it's fine for others to do their thing. Uh, that's, that's paganism. That's, that's the world that they enter into. Uh, sorry, I, didn't, I, um, I missed talking about deism. Um, so deism, God or the gods exist, but they have nothing to do with the affairs of this world. Essentially, it is practical atheism. <laughs> the evils present in this world are caused by people and therefore must be solved by people. And in the ancient world, uh, the, the view of Epicureanism uh, would be this, uh, represented by this position. Uh, deism is really an, an anachronistic term coming from the 18th century. Um, in the ancient world, it would be known as the, fo the followers of Epicurus. Now jumping back to paganism, yeah. um, I know in, in, in India, I don't know whether it's Hindu or Sikh or whatever, but you know they have the different gods in, in the different rooms that they worship, yeah. so that would be a form of paganism then, basically? Yeah, I, yeah. I think so. Yes. There'd be a lot of similarities there. Yeah. And would that have been about the time that people were erecting things like Stonehenge and huh. engines and stuff in England? <laughs> the Stonehenge actually goes back earlier yeah. with, with the Druids um, 
It's it's five thousand years old, isn't it? St- Stonehenge. It's it's old, so it actually it's going back old older than Abraham. Uh, Stonehenge. <laughs> well worth a visit, I, I must say. I wasn't. I wasn't. I, I didn't have a lot of expectations when I went to Stonehenge, but I thought it was very impressive when I got there. <laughs> well, it's interesting because they keep finding stone circles in all over. Yeah. Every, it's, it's yeah. just like, I want to know more about that. Because I like that. It's just, they don't really know so much. So it, it, it's, it's much more of an astronomical thing. Um, and I didn't, none of this is in that category. Per se, but the idea of um, you know, work, um, I suppose it would be w- within paganism because you had right. these various gods, and then they're mapped against the stars. You get the zodiac and so forth. Yeah. When did when did the Jewish people become a political nation? Because they were just a wandering nation. Yeah, it, it developed. So I would say they became a nation with a sense of identity. It was growing as they were slaves in Egypt. And they, I think they would mark uh, the, the escape from Egypt and the experience at Mount Sinai as a nation-defining event. But then uh, leadership doesn't develop for another at least 200 years with you get, uh, getting Saul and uh, David and so forth to be kings. So as, as the people moved and uh, moved through the wilderness and then came to the promised land, are they a nation at that point? I describe them as a loose confederacy of tribes. Mm-hmm. Okay, well that's en route. There is a sense of common identity, but to some extent the geography is keeping them apart. Um, So I think the process becomes more complete when you get a king and you get a central focus in Jerusalem. Well, I mean, individuals would say that when they came into the Promised Land. Um, They got it divided up. Um, How long that lasted, it would be a matter of debate. And indeed, the sense of a unified kingdom is shattered uh, with, uh, after after Solomon. So you've got, um, there are centrifugal uh, forces at work uh, pulling the nation apart. Um, but when the Jews are taken into exile in Babylon, very much their sights are on uh, coming back to, to Jerusalem. One of the Psalms uh, has the lines, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? 
And so there's something about the identity of being who we are, we have to be there. Which then just goes back to, um, uh, for example, our discussion about the book of Esther last time. It just raises the question all the more, why were there so many Jews not going back? But God had told those people to make homes and yes. have families and yes, have that's right, that's right. Flourish. Yes, that 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 was Jeremiah's word. Yeah, yeah this isn't going to be a quick one. Uh, settle down. You're not coming back tomorrow. So yes, so you have that tension going on. That's exactly. And right. you think of refugees today yeah. when they have fled and they make homes and it might be two or three generations in Zambia, yeah. and you're still in Angola, yeah. you now become Zambia. No, that's right, that's right. Where you're born is where yeah. you kind of, it's your home. Yeah, even if your father still yeah. says that okay. Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> oh, your screen changed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm changing here. We're going down to the life of Jesus. Okay, so into this world comes Jesus. Uh, Jesus has um, a sense of identity and call. One of the um, one of the first things that we read about in each of the Gospels is Jesus' baptism uh, by John the Baptist. John the Baptist appearing on the scenes um, with this description. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, He's down at the Jordan, significant location. Why Why is the Jordan significant? That's where Israel crossed into the promised land. In other words, he's calling Jews to come back to where they started in terms of life in the promised land. This is a renewal of the covenant exercise that uh, John the Baptist is going about. And Jesus goes to him. Uh, He identifies Jesus as uh, the greater one who is to come. Uh, After some resistance, uh, John does baptize him. And uh, the Gospels Uh, record Jesus hearing these words, you are my beloved son, with you you I am well pleased. And what's interesting about this is a distinctiveness about Jesus. So this doesn't seem to be the kind of language God would use of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos Right there's something you you are my beloved son. There's something uh, special about Jesus. Uh, we see it also in how Jesus speaks of God as Abba. Jesus referred to God as Father, specifically Abba, and he taught his followers to do the same. Um, Abba was the uh, an Aramaic word, which is the would have been Jesus' first language. Uh, it's a word that 
children would use of their father. Um, and that connoted both authority and intimacy. I'm not sure we have the same a comparable word in English. It's not, it's not quite as, as colloquial or as casual as daddy. It's, 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 there's more of a sense of authority to it than that. But there's also an intimacy, like my father. So, so Jerry, would you say that this came, there was a distinct change in the relationship with God from Yahweh, the I am, to Abba, because of this level of intimacy? There seems to be uh, uh, Jesus referring to God in this way. um, let me say it this way. Jews referred to God as Father. That would be not atypical. We don't, I don't believe we have reference where they speak of him as Abba. It seems to be something that was distinctive of Jesus. And it becomes distinctive of the early Christian community as well. Um, so in Galatians... Uh, 4 verse 6, Paul writes, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that's interesting. Paul is writing to uh, um, Christians in modern-day Turkey, um, province of Galatia, and he uses an Aramaic term, that's interesting. There are certain, uh, the explanation is it, it must have derived from Jesus, uh, and it was a distinctive thing in the movement, how people referred to God. One of those um, linguistic things that hang on. By the way, I, I, I fully recognize that I'm using uh, very gender-specific terms here, in terms of father and, in this text, son, and I think we just have to deal with that uh, because I'm, I'm talking about what it was like in that day. I, I, I'm trying to understand the New Testament on the New Testament terms. There is another question, how do we talk about that most appropriately in a gathered community today? Um, and, and, you know, we... I view it as about being non-gender specific, really, because, yeah. you know, to me, my mother is intimate and yeah. authoritative as well. So if you just take the sexuality out of it and recognize the relationship, that's the, right. the intimacy and authority of it, then I like yeah. to view that as being a non And it's not term. parent. Mm-hmm. No. Parent doesn't have the intimacy. Uh, our, our word parent doesn't have the word, uh, the word, uh, the in, intimate connection that mother and father does, right? We never refer to our parents as, oh, parent. (laughs) Just doesn't work. (laughs) But anyways, we just deal with this. Uh, Then Jesus as God's son. So the uniqueness of Jesus' relationship with God, of course, we're, as Christians, we jump to, oh, yes, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, okay, but remember, that's a formulation that didn't get made for another three, four hundred years. Okay, so we're coming right back and saying, okay, in what sense is Jesus unique at the time when Jesus was? And there are some very interesting markers or um, um, aspects of uh, the life of Jesus that demonstrate a distinctiveness about him. For example, there were 12 disciples. He, he had 12 disciples, right? Why 12? 12 it, it matches with the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is going to be a restoration of Israel movement. Right? So you've got the uh, 12 tribes of Israel, represented by 12 disciples. Where does Jesus fit? He's not one of the 12. Right? So he's distinct in some way in that movement. He, he, he plays a distinctive role. Um, you might have thought, you know, if he's Messiah, the descendant of David, he'd be of the tribe of Judah. And therefore he could fit as one of the twelve. But he's not one of the twelve. He's distinct from the twelve. That's interesting. Uh, text in Matthew 11 all things have been given to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's very um, specific language that no prophet would ever have used of themselves. And that kind of language, I, I mentioned this one from Matthew, it, it's, it's all over the Gospel of John, uh, but it's not just in John. And then the third thing, the parable of the vineyard. You remember the parable of the vineyard? It's one of uh, Jesus' last parables. Um, so the, uh, the man plants a vineyard, he puts a hedge around it, and uh, builds a tower and so forth. And um, he sends a servant, he, he, he has tenants take care of it, he sends a servant, and they beat him up. He sends another servant, and they beat him up. And sometimes they kill the servant, and sometimes they beat him up. And then finally he says, I still have one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him, and they say, um, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Uh, Clearly, and, and, and clearly that's told at a time in Jerusalem when Jesus is about to be uh, crucified. And it's, it, it's, it's significant that the last person that the owner of the vineyard sends is a son. Yeah. So those are some interesting um, aspects about Jesus' as son. And uh, they um, indicate... Uh, they all speak to the identity and call of Jesus. Shall we leave it there for a few minutes? Have a stand-up break? And we'll come back and say a few more things about Jesus' identity. Shall we continue? What if we said no? Would it make any difference?
Okay, one of the um, uh, next things on our list in terms of Jesus' sense of identity is his sense of being a prophet. Uh, Jesus was thought of as a prophet by others. And Jesus spoke of himself as a prophet. As a prophet, Jesus' concern was for the restoration of Israel. So, so, what exactly the word prophet mean? Like, what, what makes per, a person a prophet? Someone who speaks the word of the Lord. So when we all share God's word, we're prophets. Yeah, although a prophet or a prophetess would, would be seen as someone who has a particular gifting in that regard. Uh, and again, I, I, I'm using a Samuel as a model there. Mm -hmm. He seemed to have a particular sensitivity to hear the word of the Lord. And so, again, what do I mean by the word of the Lord? Well, it, it, it can be anything. It can be something that is particular, a particular insightful word for the moment. Um, it can be something of, this is what's going to happen. Uh, it, I mean, God can say all kinds of things. So somebody, but somebody who has a particular keen ear to hearing God speak. Not re resetting what somebody else mm -hmm. already said. You're getting the message. Yeah. To that. yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it, it doesn't mean, is it, a, it sometimes a feeling, a really strong feeling? Yeah. I, 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 you know, when you're meditating, you, you really feel strongly about something, you can feel the spirit kind of working, but this is something you should be paying attention to. <laughs> right, and indeed um, that can uh, um, that can happen to anyone within the believing community um, but to distinguish a prophet is to say this is somebody that it happens to again and again that it distinguishes them. That's their life rule, their, 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 time, their time. In some way, yeah, yeah. So, I know there's the, uh, people will um, debate about prophets in the Christian church, and there's mm -hmm. been helpful and unhelpful comments about that. But I, I, I think what I've said is still, is, is still valid. Someone who has a particular sensitivity to hearing from God. Yeah. Can you think of anybody contemporary or recently contemporary that may have fit that? Just, just, just thoughts. Probably, but I don't really want to no, go but, there. No, but you think there was probably some. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. 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 a lot of them out there, they call themselves out Well, oh, sure, there's all kinds of abuse. Um, but again, I don't think the abuse uh, says the. the the role of prophet no, is therefore... No. They call themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely not. Uh, the second point that I want to make, though, as a prophet, Jesus' concern was for the restoration of Israel. Um, Matthew fifteen twenty four. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So interesting. Uh, he does have some connection with non-Jews, uh, Roman centurions and so forth in his time, but his primary concern was for Israel, for restoration of Israel, again, uh, uh, 12 disciples. 
And then uh, I think the last thing we, we want to talk about in this category is Messiah. Um, an interesting, an interesting uh, category because, of course, we regularly today speak of Jesus the Christ, Christ being the Greek word for Messiah. Um, Jesus himself, however, was somewhat cautious about the use of the term. You remember when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Some say this, some say that. And then Peter says, yeah, but we know you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, and he says, don't tell anyone about that. And so there's something, Jesus is, is cautious. He doesn't say, no, I'm not. But there, I think the best explanation is there were certain expectations in the wider community about what Messiah would be, namely that he would be a political and military leader who would free Israel from their enemies, at this point the Romans, uh, and Jesus didn't see himself as that. And so, speaking of him as Messiah uh, was not unproblematic, let's put it that way. At his trial, he does accept the designation of Messiah, Mark 14, and he was crucified as a messianic pretender. So that's, that's significant. The, the plaque that was put above Jesus that said, King of the Jews, that's Messiah language. It was mockery from Pilate, but it's saying, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is your king. And, and all kinds of irony associated with that. Um, so I say these things, I, I mean, uh, the name Christ appears throughout the Gospels uh, but I'm actually saying these things uh, against some criticism that Jesus thought of himself as Messiah. And the, the Gospels were a bit of a rewrite after the fact, putting that me, uh, Messiah language into. Uh, that, that can happen. I mean, 50 years later, you, you're, you know that Jesus is the Christ and you're writing a story about Jesus. You refer to him as Christ. Um, uh, that can happen. But, so I wanted to look at some very tangible things that said, no, even, even with, with that, um, uh, I, I, I think there is a sense, there is a growing sense within the life of Jesus that he understood himself as Messiah. His followers probably referred to him as Messiah. Um, but after the resurrection, that, that just grew then. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so these are some helpful things to understand the sense of Jesus' identity and call. Uh, when we talk about Jesus' ministry, his announcement of the kingdom of God is the center of his preaching. It is the central motif. Uh, Mark, his ministry in the Gospel of Mark begins, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, 
repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God being uh, the realm in which God rules. There's an Old Testament residence with regard to the term the kingdom of God. You don't get that uh, term per se in the Old Testament. It's one coined by Jesus. But we get the, the language of king and kingdom. Um, we get the expectation from Daniel 2, for example, of God one day establishing his kingdom. Sometimes it's expressed through the agency of an ideal king. We talked about that for Messiah or a human representative in Daniel 7. I think Isaiah's language is really significant. Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Uh, good tidings. Uh, it's actually who, the, the one who brings good news. It's the same word in Greek as the word for gospel, as the one who gospelizes would be another way of translating it. Uh, who publishes peace, who brings good tidings of good, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So the idea of God reigning is what Jesus is picking up on here when he's talking about the kingdom of God. Right. Uh, the kingdom uh, uh, in Jesus' uh, teaching, the kingdom comes through his ministry. You get that from uh, the beginning of his um, ministry in Luke's gospel. He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth and he stands up to teach. He, re he, he reads the uh, scripture from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. In other words, preach gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's taking this text from Isaiah that speaks of gospel um, and is saying, now is the time. And when he says, release to the captives, uh, what does he have in mind? So this is Isaiah 52. This is Isaiah speaking at the time when Israelites are in Babylon. So release of the captives is coming back from captivity in Babylon, return from exile. So Jesus inaugurates the kingdom, but it's not yet fully arrived. Uh, he will teach his followers to pray uh, what we now call the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. We pray for your kingdom to come. Apparently it hasn't fully come yet. 
even if it started with uh, Jesus. And Jesus will give more parables. Uh, the kingdom is like a mustard seed uh, that will grow into a large tree, but it hasn't done that yet. Um, or it's like a piece of leaven in uh, a batch of dough. It will make it rise. Uh, or the kingdom is something that comes mysteriously. He, uh, Jesus likens the kingdom to a seed that a, that a farmer uh, plants in the ground, and then he goes to sleep. The farmer goes to sleep, and the seed grows. He does not know how. So there's a mysteriousness to how the kingdom grows as well. There's something enigmatic about the kingdom. So that's, that, that, uh, that, that's all helpful. Um, and then Jesus will go on to speak the, the kingdom finally coming at the end of the age uh, when um, the weeds will be sorted out from the, the, the uh, pro uh, proper grain, for example. So all of those perspectives are helpful. Uh, the kingdom is inaugurated by Jesus. We pray for the kingdom to come. Uh, there's the image of it starting small and growing, uh, but and and it will come one day in all its fullness when uh, at, at at the end of the age. Uh, so helpful to to see all of those within that context of what the kingdom is. Then we hear Jesus' invitation to the kingdom. Uh, Jesus' invitation is is like an invitation to a banquet. And what's um, what's interesting is is that the the people who are invited tend to be more and more uh, the people on the edges of society, the marginalized. That's not to say that others are not invited; they are, but they've got other things to do. And so, if they're not if they're not going to come to the banquet, uh, Jesus' point is that the, um, the host of the banquet is going to make sure the tables are full, so go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in, is, is the point. Okay. Yes, and so, and so you get a variety of responses. Uh, you get the parable of the sower, some seed falls on this kind of soil, some on that kind of soil, and you get different uh, growth because of that. Um, and one of the things that's, that's important in, uh, with regard to the invitation to the kingdom then is that uh, it, it, apparently it requires vigilance. It requires determination. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like uh, a treasure hidden in a field which a man finds, and then he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Um, or it's like uh, uh, somebody looking for fine pearls, and uh, finding a pearl of great value, goes and sells all that he has and buys it. So that's, that's the likeness to the kingdom, is that it's costly. You, you, you sell everything. In order to, um, well, you give up everything that you feel is currently valuable to you. Yeah, that's right. That, in order for yeah. Value. So there's the costliness, there's a determination, uh, a persistence. 
that, uh, that, that is the way of accepting. Uh, it's not a casual thing, in other words. Okay. So Jesus' invitation. Um, an invitation to share in Jesus' experience of God. Now that's interesting. This is what the invitation to the kingdom is. It's an in invitation to share in Jesus' experience of God. Beginning with, we address God as Father. Right? Our Father in heaven. Um, your Father is ready to forgive you your misdoings. Um, so what Jesus creates is this same, uh, you're, you're being brought into the kind of relationship, I need to be careful how I speak here, the kind of relationship that Jesus has with God, he wants to share that with others. And so you're learning to understand God as Father. Uh, the father forgives. Uh, the, the, uh, the father cares for his children. Um, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? But interestingly, it's not just you that the Father cares for. The Father, um, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So it's not quite just a holy club, God's care. Uh, God actually cares for everyone in his creation in this way. But those that believe in him are grateful to him for doing that. Yes. Those that don't, oh, yes. They take it for granted. Yes, they don't. But interestingly, it doesn't stop God still <laughs> from sending the rain yeah. <laughs> regardless. Yeah. And from making the sunshine regardless. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a care for all creation that the care for Jesus' community is a part of. Um, a significant development in understanding that care, but it's within that context of that creational care. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think that's significant because it, it's like what we talked about for, for the Old Testament. We talked about God's uh, dealing with Israel, his covenant with Israel, his plans for Israel, but we need to see that within the context of his care for creation itself. Uh, the point is that God cares for creation and wants to fix what's gone wrong. And that's why Israel. They can be the beginning and they can be the priest that the goes seed. and teach the rest that's of right. the That's right. That's right. Okay, so there's the uh, Jesus' announcement of the kingdom of God. Move on, um, we can talk about the proper orientation for the kingdom. So Jesus speaks about uh, the need for a renewed heart. 
It's our innermost self. Entry of the kingdom of God requires something more than affirming a set of beliefs and adopting a code of behavior. It requires a conversion of one's heart. What did I put down here? No, not yet. So no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So he's getting at, at the heart being um, the fundamental place where character um, is developed and expresses itself. You might also think of Jesus' uh, comment, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Not storing up for yourselves treasures on earth. Just what does that mean? There's something about a heart commitment that Jesus is saying is not only appropriate but necessary for this invitation um, to the kingdom. Kingdom also calls for a sacrificial way of life. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Um, Now, whatever that means, it doesn't sound like a party. (laughs) It's only semi-facetiously that I say that, because Jesus was known to have parties. Um, But this isn't that. And different ways of expressing that, uh, gaining life and losing it. Uh, whoever seeks to gain his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will, will preserve it. Um, you remember the story of James and John um, wanting to be on either side of Jesus in his kingdom. And he says, are you able to, are you able to share my cup? Are you able to share my baptism? Are you able to share my cup? Are you able to share my lot in life? Uh, that seems to be the point of the word uh, cup here. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Uh, humbling oneself um, when they're debating about who is to be greatest in the kingdom. What does Jesus do? He takes a child says, in order to be great, you need to become like a child. Uh, there's a child-likeness that is appropriate in the kingdom. Uh, and the language of becoming last in order to become first. Um, that is how greatness happens. You could add in there Jesus' action of washing his disciples' feet. That would be a a, a pretty good um, demonstration of the sacrificial life. Did I give you a quote there? 
by, by uh, Marcus Ford. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I find his, uh, his uh, language here quite helpful. This internal dying or death has two closely related dimensions of meaning. On the one hand, it is a dying of the self as the center of its own concern. On the other hand, it is a dying to the world as the center of security and identity. These, the self and the world, are the two great rival centers to centering in God. And the path of transformation thus involves a dying to both of them. I think that's quite helpful. So dying to the self means, for me, means I care about you. Means I care about other people. That's that's what a dying to self would would be, and a dying to the, to, to the world is uh, a variety of things. But one thing would be my security is not simply in my bank account. That I can be right. generous beyond my expectations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, I, I mean, it's it, it's really interesting. I think. I think reading the New Testament is helpful because it is a sense, it is a document that shapes identity. And it's, it's helpful then to think of um, <coughs> what is my identity? I mean, it, all of our identity is made up of different things. But for example, am, am, uh, how important is it that I'm Canadian? Is, 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 that, is that a valid thing for me to think of in terms of my identity as a Christian? How does that relate to being... Uh, to being a child of God? How, how, how does that relate? Well, I think they're, they're, they're helpful questions to think about. Uh, but it's precisely... That kind of thing that the New Testament is raising, where is our sense of identity? <clears throat> and let me say, I don't think it's just an either or, but, it, but, but it's a sorting out. The sense of identity that you can relate to that as a Christian is shining your light in your everyday life. Yeah. Um, well, we could go into all kinds of yeah. things about our identity. Um, Jerry, just have our own seminary. Yeah. Yeah, great, great conversation. I mean, how important is it for... Um, I'm a stamp collector, <laughs> and, and I'm, I write up little bits about Canadian stamps, and I just did the one on the, the, the uh, Summit Hockey Series in 1972, and I remember it vividly. How important was it for me mm-hmm. that Canada won? And how much is that connected to my identity? Well, God wants wants the best from us. Yeah. And and if if part of our 
being is our identity with a country. We want what's best for the country. We want to shine there as well as to shine for Yeah, true. Um, but I presume Christians in Russia thought the same thing. <laughs> I, yeah, I always remember that song. first show I saw that made me think mothers cry on the other side as well as the mothers on yeah, our side. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, again, it's, it's not a black and white thing, but, it, but I think what the New Testament does in bringing us into this kingdom language, uh, Jesus inviting us to share in this relationship with God, that we are children of God, um, it brings into question other ways that we identify ourselves. And there may be values that we need to sort out. Um, there may be uh, uh, disputed values that, that show uh, Christians to be different than other people. Anyways, I just we don't need to go further into that. So a proper orientation to uh, the kingdom, requiring a new heart, requiring a, a, a sacrificial life. Uh, we should say something about the power of the kingdom because this was very significant. Uh, Jesus was known as a healer. And this was typical of his uh, ministry. Uh, let me say something that may surprise you. There's no Jewish expectation that Messiah would be a healer. It's interesting. Now, just because Jesus heals and drives out demons would not have been evidence in Jewish mind that he's Messiah. Yes, that's right. That's right. I, I mean, it'd be very impressive. Yeah. But it wouldn't say, "Oh, you must be Messiah." But this is distinctive of uh, uh, Jesus. Um, at one time, uh, John the Baptist is confused about Jesus. And he sends some of his disciples to go to Jesus and say, Hey, were we, were we right? Are you the one who was to come or should we be looking for someone else? And Jesus says these words, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. Um, now again, uh, none of that is evidence that he is Messiah. Maybe that the poor have the good news preached to them, I don't know. Uh, but that's not specifically messianic language. What it is, however, um, is it reflects the expectation of the prophets of the new age or of new creation, of God, what God would do to restore his people. And except for the except for the language about lepers being cleansed, I can take you back to uh, the prophets and see for each of those things, that's what the prophet said God would do when he restores his people. 
Um, Isaiah 35, you'll remember these words. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man shall leap like a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and, and uh, streams in the desert, etc. That's the language of new creation, of God restoring and healing his people. So Jesus is filling that expectation. There's also a um, depiction of Jesus being an exorcist. <clears throat> he casts out demons. Uh, he's not the only one. There were other uh, exorcists. In fact, there were uh, exorcists in the Jesus tradition who used uh, Jesus' name in their incantations. In some, in some places, the name Jesus becomes like a powerful, a, a word of power. Yeah. Um, in response, some uh, people who don't like Jesus uh, criticize him essentially for using black magic. That is, he's using an evil power to cast out evil, <laughs> which Jesus shows um, the irony of. <laughs> Satan cannot cast out Satan, <laughs> the idea. Um, but, so although there are others, uh, there are Jewish exorcists, what's interesting about Jesus' exorcisms is the way he performs them he doesn't use a typical incantation formula. He doesn't pray. He doesn't invoke the name of a more powerful being. He doesn't say in the name of so-and-so, do this. As was typical in exorcisms, he just says, come out. Right? So there's something distinctive about the way he does this. And indeed, <clears throat> you can imagine at some point in Jesus' life, he experiences that he has this ability to, to heal and to cast out demons. And how impressive, how, how uh, um, that must have had an impact on him, on his understanding of God working through him. And then we can also talk about the recipients of Jesus' healing. One of the things to note here is, um, is the response of faith. Uh, and Jesus will say, according to your faith, may it be done to you. Your faith has made you well. Uh, and it's also, again, like with the invitation, it tends to be people on the margins of society. Um, who are healed. And that's significantly different from other ancient uh, biographical literature of the day. 
Um, in other biographies, uh, the concern was with the wealthy, the elite, people who would make history happen, uh, the people who should be held up as examples to follow. Well, in some ways, that's Jesus. But interestingly, that's not the kind of people he gathers around himself. So the, the Jesus story is different from other biographies of the day. Okay, I want to say some things about uh, Jesus' understanding of the kingdom of God in contrast to the Judaism of Jesus' day. The first thing to say here is about something called table fellowship. It's about whom you eat with. It's not specifically about what you eat. That, that was an issue too, of course. But table fellowship is about who you eat with. Jesus challenged the ways many Jews excluded people on the margins by eating with the wrong kind of people. So he was criticized as being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Probably an overstatement, but then most criticism is an overstatement. But it shows the difference between Jesus and the dominant Jewish society. Jesus associated with people who were on the margins, and hence also the accounts of Jesus associating with uh, women, children, foreigners, Samaritans, sick people. Um, people who, if you were wanting to make a name for yourself, these weren't the kinds of people that you gathered around yourself. Uh, and I, I put women in that list too, because women were um, in, in the home. They, they, they weren't in public. It's, it's not the way you made a public name for yourself. Uh, by um, gathering this particular crowd that Jesus was gathering. That's so, uh, in today's society, that is so much. Like, I think of high schools. It's such yeah. a root of so much that negativity that goes on. Uh-huh. You know, you can't sit at our table. You're not yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, you're yeah. not on our team. You're, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're having our own group, you know. And, yeah. and, and that goes out into their adulthood. But it's the, the bullying and everything that comes out of it. Yeah. Uh, Pharisees took a keen interest in meals as well as Jesus did. They were concerned with a careful adherence to Torah and one of the ways of maintaining purity was to eat uh, with the right kind of people. Jesus, however, practiced meals of inclusion rather than meals of exclusion. He prioritized moral and relational aspects above uh, ritual ones, aspects of the law. 
Okay, so that's some helpful things about the, the community that Jesus is gathering, having table fellowship. Another one uh, that we want to look at is his Sabbath actions. Keeping the Sabbath, which simply meant not working on the Sabbath, was another way in which Jews maintained their distinctiveness and hence a sense of their own identity. Uh, and this became very important. You remember the documents, the Jewish documents uh, we talked about, I think it was last time, the Mishnah. The Mishnah was something that came out about 200. It goes on at length. What is work? What, what is it that is work that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath? Uh, so you don't get that detailed description in the Old Testament. Uh, but in order to be specific, we've got to know what you can do and what you can't do, right? Jesus upset a number of people, particularly those who were insistent on how laws were to be kept, by performing several of his healings on the Sabbath. Now, at the time, as far as we can tell, the ruling was that medical care was work and therefore unless it was a life-threatening situation doctors should wait until the next day right? now the patient waits till the doctor has the That's it, yeah. <laughs> on, on on several occasions however none of which were life-threatening jesus healed people on the Sabbath. And it seems that he particularly chose the Sabbath. Now, did he break the law? Was he practicing medicine as a doctor would practice medicine? <laughs> this is... Uh, the, the, this is the comic dilemma that you get in John chapter 9 about the, remember the man who was born blind and Jesus heals him? Yeah. Who, who healed you? Uh, we know this man is a sinner, so, you know, God doesn't listen to him. So how are you healed? And on and on. I, of course, uh, if they acknowledge that he's been healed, then they got to acknowledge that Jesus... Yeah, that God was working through Jesus. It, it, it's, it, it's the funniest chapter I find in the New Testament. It, it, it really is. There's such, such, such irony go, uh, going on there. But, but why is Jesus doing this? Yeah, clearly he's pushing the boundaries. Is he against Sabbath law, for example? I don't think so. I don't think he's saying, look, you people, you... You, you heard it wrong on the mountain. Uh, God didn't really say don't, uh, uh, that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. I don't think that's what he's doing. But what he is doing is saying that Sabbath and healing belong together. The true meaning of Sabbath is that it is a day to experience and indeed to celebrate restoration. The significance of his healings are that they share the original meaning of Sabbath, a day to celebrate God's creation and God's liberation 
of his people from slavery in Egypt. Um, when, he, when, when Jesus heals the lady who was uh, sick for 18 years, this is in Luke 13, he says, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? The point was, it was precisely the Sabbath day that was appropriate for restoration. Okay. But you can also see how, from some people's perspective, he's pushing the boundaries. You could have waited till the next day. No, I couldn't. Yeah. Not to make that point. Not to make that point. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. But in today's society, there's so much... The Sabbath is just another day. Yeah, yeah. You choose to set yeah. it apart as something. No, else. we've lost that. I really feel guilty when I have to go to the store on the Sabbath, <laughs> and I know it has nothing to do with my salvation. <clears throat> but I just, I like to, I like to take and, and just make it different, you know. Well, it becomes an interesting, um, an interesting point in the Jesus movement. It is, uh, uh, do we still keep Sabbath? And Paul will say there are some people who esteem certain days and there are others who don't. Uh, so it is an issue actually in the, in the New Testament. Remember, Sunday will not be a day off for people. I was embarrassed. It was never a day off. That, it, yeah. Uh, and so what do you do for worship? Well, you would come up early in the morning to worship. You, yeah. you, you would come before. Um, but, but do you not work on Saturday then as, 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 a, as a, a follower of Jesus? It's, it's a live question, actually, in the, in the uh, New Testament. Uh, Sabbath, a, a temple clearing. So this is right at the end before Jesus is uh, ar arrested. And I think we need to stop with this one. Um, the temple, of course, was the most important focus for all of, Ju of uh, Judaism. It represented God's presence with his people. All the Jews were supposed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at least once in their lives. Even if you're living outside Palestine, you're paying an annual tax to the, to the operation of the temple. Uh, the temple symbolizes a continuing Jewish faith in the midst of foreign influence. Did that go for the, those that were following the practicing Jews as well as the non-practicing Jews? I think so. I think if you're a Jew, you're to pay your half-shekel uh, annual tax. Just by, by the birth that you are born? My guess is, though, my, my, my guess is it would be uh, administered through the synagogue. And so if you weren't connected with a synagogue, you might not. Um, you're, you, if you're not connected with the synagogue, right, you're here, really not you claiming anything Jewish about yourselves. Yeah. yeah. So needless to say, criticism against the temple was taken to be a very serious offense. Jesus sees the temple as a locus of abuse of power. 
those responsible for its operation and perverted its true purpose. And so Jesus enacts a kind of symbolic destruction of the temple. He overturns uh, the uh, 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 tables of the money changers and sets the birds aflock and so forth. Uh, He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Um, and, and then a few days later I'll just, I'll, I'll just say that and then a few days later he makes this prophecy about the temple there will not be left here one stone upon another mm-hmm. and that will come up in his trial mm-hmm. but, but the point is this thing in the I, I mean he's not his action in the temple is symbolic at best. He's not doing anything that's not going to be fixed in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, but it's, it's a symbolic protest against the temple. And then it's, it's, a, it's a clear uh, prediction of the destruction of the temple, of which he happens to be right, uh, come another 40 years. This morning, how churches, how they're used today, are, are they used... Are they used according to this, or are they? I mean, there's a variety of uses in churches nowadays. Um, yeah, and 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 so the specific things that Jesus upsets, um, we could we could debate about this, but you needed money changers mm-hmm. because you weren't allowed to pay with with Greek coin or Roman coin. Uh, at the temple. You needed shekels. Well, if you had come from out of the country, you didn't have where you're going to get shekels from. You've got to have uh, uh, a bureau de change uh, in the temple. You know, and, and, and you needed animals for the sacrifices, so you needed the money and then you needed to buy the animals. So it was all very appropriate, but it was what could be upset in order to demonstrate a... a, a um, a protest against the the operation of the temple at uh, in in large. Right. So I I don't think it's right to say that oh Jesus didn't think there should be money changers there. Oh Jesus didn't think there should be animals there. He shouldn't be taking advantage of the people that are using it. It it, it, it was the temple um, operation as a whole that wasn't taking Judaism in the right direction. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a better way of thinking about this. Okay? I think that's enough. We, uh, uh, um, next time we want to talk about how Jesus uh, interprets Torah, which is going to be very, very significant. So in what way uh, was he anti-law? No. Was he against the Torah? No. Well, other Jews were in, in favor of the Torah. So how is he different? So that's, that, that, that's a really key point that we need to look at. How is he different from other Jews with regard to the scriptures? Okay. But I think we can leave it there for now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.